Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. Very happy to have you with us today. This one is Scott Morris, and that one is Drew Tavendale. Hello there. So we are today continuing our look at the career of Mr. Spike Lee, and today we're what is well, at least at the moment, the middle of his career, round about the millennium. Uh, we're starting with ninety-seven, going all the way through to two thousand and two. So uh, let's get started with a look at four little girls. True. What's that about? Not as dodgy as it sounds in the way you put it like that. (laughs) Four of Spike Lee's films have been selected for inclusion in the United States National Film Registry, an honour that's given to works considered to be culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. The first two films were among those we covered in our first Spike Lee episode, and the fourth is this, as Scott says, Four Little Girls, Lee's first attempt at making a documentary. Things begin with a recounting of the nature and personalities of four girls who died before their time. Something which tends to rankle with me because, while no child should die, all dead children are part of the little angels. And yes, this is a soapbox moment. Just, I'll get back onto topic shortly. <laughs> Presumably most people are holding to the social norm of not speaking ill of the dead, but how is it that no dead child was ever a little bastard? <laughs> This is a complaint about society in general, of course, and I mention it here more because I don't care, in the abstract, what the people were like, and I resent when factual works try to overly personalise or humanise the victims of a tragedy. What they were like is irrelevant. They are dead, and they should not be dead. This is entirely sufficient. Yes. Slash soapbox. (laughs) The initial stories, though, about and memories of the four little girls of the title gradually give way to and are mixed into the bigger picture of the time. These four girls were murdered by a Ku Klux Klan bombing in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 as a response to the growing strength of the civil rights movement, and in particular the involvement of large numbers of younger people, particularly schoolchildren. The particularly shocking thing that this film highlights is that these girls, whose ages ranged from 11 to 14, weren't unlucky victims, they were targets. Lee's narrative weaves together the stories of the girls, their families, the civil rights movement and the effects on all of these of the bombing and others like it. It's a deeply affecting film. How could a film about children murdered by terrorists be anything other, of course? And... In the trait of the best documentaries, educates and informs. In fact, my only problems with Four Little Girls are technical ones. There is the ever-present, usually unwelcome underscoring that afflicts Lee's work, and horribly claustrophobic framing of most of the interview subjects. A real surprise given the accomplishments in other films of Lee's DB here, the well-regarded Ellen Kubis. This results in a number of sequences in which the camera pushes in for an even tighter close-up of an emotion-filled face, leaving us staring at a full screen of one eye, a nose and half a mouth. It is not an effect that works. (laughs) However, that's not the point that the content is. And, well, it's a story about children being murdered during the civil rights movement because, well, some people are just evil, quite frankly. In this tale of hatred and tragedy, there is, surprisingly, a moment of wry humour, as the notoriously racist, apartheid-defending former governor of Alabama, George Wallace, tries to claim, with no apparent hint of irony, (laughs) that he isn't and wasn't a racist, even going so far as to claim that one of his best friends is black. 
Yes, that old chestnut. <laughs> and forcing said man to shake hands with him for the benefit of Lee's camera. <laughs> the expression on said friend's face is truly a picture <laughs> and likely worth more than a thousand words. His face and the film are well worth seeing. Yes, yes. Um, I don't think of a great deal to add or talk about that you've not mentioned there. Yes, very affecting. Um, I very much enjoyed the way that it placed the the bombing tragic as it is in the kind of wider context of the civil rights movement that uh, was quite an effective little strand of actually informing at the same time as just um you know not not just following the the shock and misery of the the bombing itself and so yes that was uh, very well worth watching I uh, can't really think I've got anything else to add that at all um, yes it's very good documentary and well worth watching and certainly it's one of these, it, it probably does deserve to be um, in the Library of Congress as well, um, not just for the, the telling of the events and the emotion that it brings, but also the the kind of wider context of it as well. Yeah, quite enjoyed it. It's always hard to tell without further research, but as far as I can tell, it seems quite objective. To be honest, there's not really a much need for greater context because, you know, murder to children. Yeah. There's yeah. not like an, an, another hand that has to be you know, given equal weight here or anything like that. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. I was a wee bit worried at first, like I said, just because I don't think there's any particular value to saying, well, these people were loved and they were killed. Lots of people that are killed are loved. That's not really the point. Yeah. It's the why, but the, it kind of uses that as a central point to begin with, then fleshes it around it before and after, and then more just other general things that happened that were similar. Yeah. So it, it very much won me over there. It's... Um, it's certainly one of those films that will fill you with rage watching it. Yeah. It's disgusting. And unfortunately, it doesn't feel like an awful lot has changed in some ways. And No, uh, that's the, very much a recurring theme of Lee's work, isn't it? Isn't this pointing out something is dreadful and how it's not really got any less dreadful in intervening 20 odd years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. And really, I, I want to mention again, because I don't know if you had quite the same reaction as me, Scott, but I was. That's what some are pretty laughing and going, oh, oh, his face when you yeah. saw the. And it comes back to another time as well as the look in that cow's face. It's like, okay. <laughs> basically, I can't do anything here. I probably have a mortgage to pay, and that's why I'm here. But oh, yeah. the f- look in his face when George, of all people, George Wallace forces him to shake his hand and says, This is my best friend. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Yes. Yes. It was pretty funny, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no self-awareness, that guy at all. <laughs> George Wallace, I mean, not the, yeah, the so-called yeah. friend. <laughs> yes, George Wallace, not a good person. <laughs> You're not going to convince us otherwise. You're trying to do a bit of revisionism here, thinking it's not working. But yeah. that's another good bit about it, actually, is that Lee here isn't... He's not trying to, you know, catch him out or put any words in his mouth. He's basically just stuck the camera on him and he speaks. Yeah. Because there's a few <laughs> good sections of unbroken speaking. And it's like not being edited. And I was like, yeah, he's just, he's basically hanging himself, which is ironic because that's largely what he wanted to do to black people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Pity it was only metaphorical. But <laughs> <laughs> Let us move on then, Scott, to a film that has probably my favourite um, song based soundtrack ever. 
Yes, which is an He Got Game, uh, in which we enter the world of the Basketball Men, in particular the world of Basketball Men prodigy Ray Allen's Jesus Shuttleworth, coming to the end of his high school career and heavily quoted by universities and professional teams alike. His father, Denzel Washington Jake Shuttleworth, uh, looks on proudly, but from behind bars. He's approached with an offer from the state governor's office, namely to get Jesus to sign up with the Gov's old uni in return for time off his sentence. So Jake is sent off on a work lease of sorts and set up by his watchers in a cheap and sleazy hotel where he'll meet love interest and hooker with a heart of gold archetype, Mila Hovitz's Dakota, but initially has much less success in meeting with his son. Fair enough, I suppose. After all, he was put in jail for the accidental death of his wife, following some not-at-all-accidental domestic violence, bound to put a strain on the familial bonds. Uh, While Denzel's the marquee name on the acting side of things, it's actually your actual basketballman, Ray Allen, that's got all the decisions to make and the souls to search, as rotating smorgasbord of people come to Jesus trying to influence his decision or simply freeload off of him, be that family members, scouts, college reps, or his girlfriend, Rosario Dawson's Lala. Thankfully, Alan's up to the task, and having no knowledge of the state of late 90s basketball reality, I did not know that he was, in actual fact, an actual basketballman, and if Wikipedia hadn't told me, I doubt I'd have guessed it. Although, perhaps his undeniable athleticism on the basketball pitch should have clued me in. So, top work, fella. Uh, with terrific performances across the board, and a killer soundtrack, He Got Game is one of Spike Lee's most easily enjoyable films, and perhaps the easiest watch of his so far. However, that breeziness does rather come at the expense of any kind of deeper connection with anything in the film, which is Unusual for Lee. Um, he's not exactly known for his subtlety. Uh, he Got Game presents us with an interesting bunch of characters for sure, and I enjoy my time with them, but at the end, I'm not sure I've really learned all that much about them or that they've learned all that much about themselves. There's some other minor qualms I could list, although pointing out any factual flaws in either the scouting process or the foster arrangements seems a bit silly in a film with an actual teleporting basketball. So the only ones that I'll mention (laughs) is is that this is the first of Lee's films that's gone over two hours that I felt probably shouldn't have done, and it's not going to be the only time in this episode that we'll be saying that, or I will at least. Uh, However, it's not that big of an issue here, and I'd be perfectly well entertained by Denzel Washington reading a phone book for two hours. So again, very watchable and enjoyable film, but for me, doesn't ultimately have have quite the impact of some of his prior work. No, um, I'm largely where you are, Scott. It's it's entertaining, but I think the problem is I feel it's a bit too sympathetic towards Denzel Washington's character because he's not a good person. Yeah. And the film seems to be slightly more forgiving. I hate the ending. I <laughs> hate the ending because yeah. it's so unmerited. Yeah. You know, um, the son Jesus should have basically told um, Jake to get stuffed. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, but then he ends up making the decision he does not. No, he doesn't deserve that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it. It kind of presents Jake as an already reformed character without showing any of the steps to how he would have become reformed. We're just supposed to take it as read that no, he's he's all right now. Yeah. Um, where and it's not really done any of the work to, to do that and it's quite effective at setting up as a, a villain in flashback sequences so yeah it doesn't quite gel together on that level yeah it's like there's a missing scene um, or a missing sequence yeah yeah. because I mean there are moments where you see that Jake has a, a more level head and his shoulders at least in the past and he is reasonably upfront with Jesus about why he's approaching him when he is. Yeah. Rather than using subterfuge, he just comes straight out and says. But at the same time that the 
the aggression that was between them in the basketball court at the end. And I, I really yeah. don't understand why Jesus doesn't say, you know, take a hike, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before you even take in, um, involved with the bet that they make. So that's kind of frustrating. Uh, but yeah, it's still quite entertaining. Again, yeah, Denzel Washington, I could watch in anything. Yeah. I, th- I think actually maybe that's slightly to the film's detriment because again, it's, I think you should dislike Jake more, but it's because it's Denzel Washington. You don't. <laughs> yeah. There are a few actors that happens with, and he's definitely one of them. It's like, yeah, he, I want this character should be more unlikable, but Denzel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's quite an interesting choice of soundtrack too, actually. The the Public Enemy soundtrack of a Higa game, it probably is, as I said, my favourite like song-based soundtrack on anything. I've listened to that so many times over the years in the last two decades. Yeah. It's curious, though, that it's actually barely in the film at all. There's the occasional snippet mm-hmm. on the radio, maybe, and yeah. there's, other than the end credits, there's maybe one piece that you actually hear more of, whereas most of the soundtrack comes from Aaron Copeland. Yeah. <laughs> which is unusual, but actually I think really works. Even Particularly the, the opening scenes, there's just something kind of light and uplifting about that music that opens the film. Mm-hmm. And that actually did a lot to set my mood for the film. I can't quite describe it. It's it's just quite a light piece, but it's there's something kind of hopeful about it. Yeah. And I didn't actually check which particular piece that was at the time. There's a few famous bits of Copeland's work in there as well, some perhaps lesser known things. But it's uh, Aaron Copeland in a basketball film is not like, the, <laughs> not most the obvious, obvious thing, yeah. But it's actually, it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been just textured in nicely and for the most part it works maybe because of the incongruity of it yeah I, I think it's more just the it's a kind of hopeful nature of a lot of the music that's used that suggests maybe basketball is an escape which is what it would be for Jesus there's that kind of idea to it but yes it, the the big problem with the film itself though is that it does go on a bit too long it's not, it's not quite got the substance for it mm-hmm. um, and also and this is a, a thing that bothers me a lot, as you know, Scott, and I, I know it has some degree of annoyance for you as well, but the casting of, you know, really ancient people as a part of high school students. Yeah. yeah. Rosario Dawson, 19, bang on, no problem. Ray Allen was 23 when this was made, or 22, 23. I'll take it, given that they particularly want someone who can play basketball okay. Yeah. But his cousin is played by a 33-year-old. Yeah. 32-year-old. <laughs> nope. <laughs> It's meant to be the same age as him. Nope. <laughs> Stop doing that. Yeah. We're not fooled. <laughs> Just because he's wee doesn't make him look young. <laughs> it's not how ageing works. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's worth watching. But it's, um, I don't know, I kind of want something a bit more from it. Yeah, I think ultimately, and again, and usually for Lee, he's not normally shy about hitting you upside the head with his messaging <laughs> in, in his movies. And this one, I'm not sure quite what the ultimate point of it was, unless it's don't kill your wife. Um, <laughs> but but a lot of it is, um, you know, because so much of it is about uh, Jesus trying to come to terms with what everyone wants from him. And at the end of the day, I'm not quite sure how he got to the answer that he did, even if that is, in fact, an answer. Um, yeah, I, I had a bit of a case of the so what's when you get to the end of it. Uh, I enjoyed my time with it, but when you think, so what exactly was the point of that? I, I can't really give you a distinct answer for it. 
I enjoyed my time with it. I enjoyed all the characters. I enjoyed all the interplays. Uh, but what the ultimate message of it, other than work out what people are trying to get from you, is, I'm not quite sure exactly what can. What's my action from this? Um, not necessarily that it needs to have a message, but it's just it seems like it was stretching towards something, but not quite hitting anything. It has also made me wonder, and I know it's a big deal, but quite how much money there is in college basketball in the United States. Oh, yes, yes. Because the corrupt parole officers are just handing them hundreds of dollars. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's quite strange. Yeah. Shall we take a look then at Summer of Sam? I think we shall. Summer of Sam takes us back to 1977 and a New York City experiencing a heat wave that is causing tensions to rise. Unlike in Do the Right Thing, though, there is another element at play, fear. During this particular summer, residents of New York were frightened by a number of murders committed by the 44 caliber killer, a serial killer more commonly known today as the Son of Sam. For most of the film, though, this is, well, it's a background to the lives of the inhabitants of a fictional area of the city, where are to be found serial cheating, raging hypocrite, hairdresser and general Get Finney, John Leguizamo, his wife Diona, Mira Servino, and Richie, Adrian Brody, Vinny's best friend and avowed punk. Though it's not clear if it's the character or the actor who thinks British punk culture comes via Melbourne. <laughs> e gad that accent. <laughs> Surrounding them are a number of other characters, the most notable of whom are Michael Vespoli's Joey T, a low-level drug dealer, his attendant and very, very stereotypical sportswear-wearing Italian-American friends, and Ben Gazzara's Luigi, who is a plumber. <laughs> a plumber? Not that Luigi plumber, um, even with the John Leguizamo connection. No. Um, a plumber, as he makes it quite clear to the police, and not sort of any mafia don at all. A plumber, capiche? As the killings continue, and Vinny's neighbourhood becomes more tense, having been the scene of more than one of the killings, the inhabitants take it upon themselves to discover the identity of the son of Sam, and bring some good old-fashioned mob justice down upon him based on good old-fashioned mob detective work, like someone having a car, or that <laughs> it stands to reason. He's got funny eyes, and, well, he's a bit weird right enough. <laughs> Richie, in particular, is not going to fare well, as he is dare to be different, and, infamy of infamies, he may be gay too. The prosecution rests, my lud. I found Summer of Sam kind of a frustrating film. It reads, at least, as quite an authentic portrait of late 1970s New York, even if the less important characters do seem a little broad and stereotypical, and there are certainly interesting themes and stories in there, including repressed homosexuality, perverted morality and male double standards, and the evergreen fear of the other. Less strong themes include that of swearing, as Summer of Sam still finds itself in space year 2020 at number five in Wikipedia's list of list of films that frequently use the word flipperty gibbet. <laughs> Whatever would we do without such a valuable resource, huh? <laughs> Racking up 435 uses of the F word in its overlong two hour, 22 minute running time. It's not the most scintillating dialogue I've ever heard, I will say. <laughs> Though, to be fair, you do stop noticing it quite quickly. But the big frustration is the fact that Summer of Sam 
is about the son of Sam, while absolutely not being about the son of Sam. Take that out and, well, it still works and would perhaps work better, simply as a drama about the lives of the people in this time and this place. But, and while I still found John Leguizamo, likeable certainly not the word, but engaging, despite his character being a douche canoe, I'd far rather have watched more about David Berkowitz and the, inv- and the investigation that finally caught him. Director Lee himself appears in a minor role that still manages to be one of his worst performances, <laughs> in a whole subplot that could easily have been excised, and naturally the double dolly shot is here. <laughs> and I really am sorry to harp on about it, but it is almost always... Almost, we'll get to the one film where it at least fits the scene soon, entirely out of place and typically jarring. The upside of watching a lot of the work of one filmmaker over a short period of time is that you can appreciate any progression in skill and craft as you become more aware of style and recurring themes. The downside is that you become acutely aware of the things that niggle. Acutely. (laughs) Uh, And I would finish by saying that I also learned, except that I was never in the slightest doubt that if you're going to have a character be told by a dog to kill people, do not, whatever you do, show the dog telling him this. (laughs) It's a bad, bad time. Yes, I thought that was a very funny scene. I don't think it was intended to be funny, but... (laughs) Just randomly having John Turturro as a dog show up. (laughs) Yeah, kill people. Yeah, I'm broadly... Um, in the same place as you, just to be boring. Um, it's a weird film on a number of levels. Like, I didn't really know a great deal about The Summer of Sam going into this, other than, oh, it's about the Son of Sam killers. And it's not. Or it is, but it's not. I don't, it was, seemed to be like mildly controversial because it was fairly graphic in its detail of how the, the, the actual killings are taking place. And it shows a lot of violence in the, in that regard but it almost doesn't tie into the wider plot of what the actual characters that we know about are doing exactly. you know, it's if you saw all to do with it for the most part yeah i mean i don't know in a, in a way i kind of don't you know it's one of these things you know, serial killers are kind of fascinating by nature but maybe there's a solid argument for saying we shouldn't actually give them any oxygen or publicity at all because that's what some of them after it's only gonna perpetuate this uh, with yeah. other people yeah. but if you are going to make a film about these serial killings i was expecting it to be a bit more about the serial killer and not the effect that the serial killer had on well, New York, and but in particular this section of New York. But again, it's a, it's, I can understand how that would seem to be an interesting tack to take, and it did kind of drag me along for a little bit uh, because you've got some kind of interesting characters and seeing how the, the kind of tension rises as, as this kind of goes on, leading to the kind of events of the end of the film, where it kind of to a degree draws back to the. Um, do the right thing um, scenarios to, as that kind of was building intention all that as well at the end, but it's just markedly less successful because the characters ultimately aren't as interesting or as or, or as empathetic, not necessarily sympathetic, but I can't really build up a lot of empathy with what these characters are doing a lot of the time. Uh, none of them are particularly interesting to me. Uh, so, yeah, ultimately, it's an interesting experiment, but it doesn't quite work, and it's insanely long for what it is. Um, 
I don't know if this is a seems to be a bit of a recurring theme with the, the kind of mid-career at the minute of um, some lead stuff. It's like the, there's just not enough content. There's not enough ideas. There's not enough um, vision in here to sustain for one, what, 142 minutes, it says here, yeah. um, which felt a lot like 142 minutes. Um, he's done long films in, in, well throughout his career, but they always felt justified with it. I mean, Do the Right Thing's not a particularly short film. I look at how long Malcolm X is, but it, it yeah, deserves it, and requires every moment of its running time. Yes, exactly. And those films did not feel long. This film felt long. This film felt like it had run out of ideas. This film felt like it was put in. It, it felt like its violence was gratuitous. It felt like it didn't really need to be there for the plot to work. And it was just simple shock value rather than anything rather than that violence being used to make any kind of wider point about uh, society or anything like that, it it just seemed like a bit of a waste of time. You could split this, I think, into two films that are individually quite good, um, Mm. either about the the kind of impact of the the Summer of of Sam on this group of friends and how it kind of breaks them apart and all that stuff. And it could have one about uh, David Berkowitz himself, the Summer of Sam, and what he was doing and how they caught him. But this kind of doesn't really land on either one. Uh, it, yeah. it didn't quite hang together. I see exactly what I was saying. So exactly my point is, yeah, either one of those things would work, but they they have so little to do with each other. Mm. Like the the fear is fine as an inciting cause for the paranoia and the the trying to find the the weird people that don't fit with your worldview in your neighbourhood. Yeah, but then just keep the actual son of Sam killer out of it because it, it bears no relation. Yes. Yeah, or you make like a Zodiac type film about Berkowitz himself. It's it's strange. I don't know what he was hoping to achieve there to have so much of a crossover. And then there's a talking dog, Scott. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it barely works when it's Scooby-Doo. Yes. It doesn't really belong in this kind of film. Just out of curiosity, I had a little look for what people said about the dog at the time. And I didn't find a lot. But I did find Kim Newman's review on Empire, who says, the film has some daring dramatic coups and the talking dog is a jaw dropper. Now, <laughs> well, I agree with the choice of words, not the reason. <laughs> yes. it's, I mean, it would look bad now. In fact, I suspect it would look worse now because it would be somebody would try to have the dog's lips moving with CGI or something now rather yeah. than just having a voiceover with the dog's jaw open. But... <laughs> It's not good. <laughs> it's a talking dog. Yeah. <laughs> I think if someone has a mental illness and believes this thing, I don't think there's any good way to convey that visually. Just tell me. Yeah. Right? Because it's going to look stupid otherwise. And boy, does it look stupid. <laughs> yes. It certainly does. <laughs> yes, but it managed three uses of the F word per minute Scott so well I guess that's an achievement well done it was useful <laughs> achievement unlocked right Scott let's move on to a film that in terms of its deliberate offensiveness looked at films like the producers and such like and said hold my beer <laughs> yes uh, uh, with a title that pretty much accurately encapsulates my feelings towards it, and most people it would seem, Bamboozled drops us into the lap of Pierre Delacroix, uh, Damon Wines, uh, 
a TV executive working under station boss and all-round jackass Thomas Dunwitty, played by Michael Rappaport, who dismisses his show ideas as mere Cosby clones, pushing for something a bit more, I believe, urban would be the euphemism where there's a record store. Exasperated, Pierre lists two street entertainers, Savion Glover's Man Ray and Tommy Davidson's Womack, to star in a radical new pilot that will show Dunwitty his error by taking his request to the illogical extreme, resurrecting the minstrel shows of actually not all that long ago, uh, but this time with African Americans in blackface. So far, so producers, uh, particularly when it becomes, in defiance of all logic and reason, successful, and with any intended satire going roundly unnoticed by the general public. Uh, but Pierre soon gets over his disgust and learns to enjoy the glory, much the disgust of his PA, Jarrah Pinkett Smith's Sloan Hopkins. The back half of the film deals with Womack and Man Ray's increasing misgivings about their line of work and the balance of their self-respect and bank balance before everything comes to an entirely out-of-place end, courtesy of Moz Def's militant hip-hop collective, and I guarantee you'll be left wondering why it was decided to move from a comedy to a melodrama midway through production. Now, I'm a little puzzled, as it says here that this was shot on mini-DV, but I would swear this was actually recorded on a potato, with sound recorded on a smaller potato and mixed on, at best, a chip, or freedom fry, as I believe they're called in the user. Perhaps the recent Criterion release cleans this up, but this film is, to my recollection, the only film I've ever had to radically tweak the EQ on just to have a slight chance of hearing what people are saying. We've mentioned Lee's tendency to go overboard on the underscoring, and this is so far the absolute nadir of it. While Damon Wyans has been scientifically proven to be the least objectionable Wyans family member, <laughs> using the scientific progress of science, he's not a magician, and there's just not enough material here to work with, especially when dragged out over 100 135 minutes using a delivery that gets irritating after about 10 of those minutes. Now, there's a message in here for sure, but even accounting for Lee's typical straightforward delivery of that message, this is a bludgeoning, such that what I take is the actual point, the lack of a varied and complete range of opportunities for African Americans in the studio system, is almost buried under this deluge of minstrel and related artifacts that show up in the closing reels or potato peels or whatever the equivalent should be in my theoretical tuber-based production pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I didn't hate Mamboozled, and as with a lot of Lee's work, the central arguments it's making are depressingly just as valid now as they were then, but between the haphazard presentation, confused tone, and just way too longicity of the piece, I would not be recommending this to anyone. Uh, Drew, what did you make of this one? I really, really liked this. Really? Really, yeah. Um, I had very little concept going into I've got the Criterion Collection Scotland. While it's quite soft because it's like not in a high definition format, mm. I didn't notice any of the problems that you mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. But um, I think mine was based on an older DVD one, I think, and it looked awful and sounded worse. <laughs> it's soft, but it looked fine, and the sound was fine. And beyond you know any underscoring and stuff, but that's that wasn't a um, technical issue. That was a choice. So, mm. <laughs> so I think you said a bad luck with it. And I really, really liked it. I thought the the satire was scathing. I was glad to find that I didn't laugh at any of the bits that the audience in the film were laughing at because that would have been a horrible thing to find out about yourself. <laughs> but fortunately, no, no, uh, my soul's clean on that one. I was just going to watch this slightly slack jaunt or something because it was just, it was so offensive. That's really the point. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I don't have any difficulty believing any of this right up to the point of the murder, which case weirdly, maybe because I was enjoying it so much, I did think about it until right now. Now I'm thinking about it, yeah, that seems a bit much. <laughs> but the actual the way 
okay, yes, it's necessarily over the top, but the way that I would actually be successful, that nobody would ever get the satire, that it would be taken up possibly even by black people as this sort of enjoyable thing and there would be fans and everybody would be blacked up to watch. Kind of depressingly, read to me as exaggerated, hyperbolic, but believable. I don't know what else to say. Other than that, I really enjoyed it. I thought the satire was quite obvious. I thought his points came across quite well. And yeah, and you're right. The Wyans is signed out. David Wyans is signed out. to be not an objectionable Wyans, which yes. is... Um, <laughs> yeah, which is I, I just couldn't get on board with it. Um, yes, I understand it's trying to be satirical, but it just kind of... It just missed. It's, it's too broad for me. Um, particularly when... I think we've all come to the cultural understanding that blackface was a bad thing and we shouldn't do it again. And I don't think there's anyone that's really agitating for it to come back. So uh, possibly there's there's maybe another angle we could have taken with this. But I mean, blackface is such a taboo that people who were you know, dressed in blackface 20 years ago for a Halloween party are now getting cancelled um, for it. So uh, I don't think we necessarily need to, to worry about the believability of it. I think in this particular instance, um, we're probably past it. A whole lot of other things were not, and the, the kind of more stereotypical portrayal of African-Americans in, in various um, like sitcoms and all that kind of stuff is arguably you know to me that was what he was trying to get at here it's not really about blackface um but yeah how no, the, no, yeah, but... the rest of it is there and i think it had they focused on that rather than something as over the top as blackface it might have been a bit easier to to get on board with but no um as i say the technical quality of it was not to doing it any work uh favors and i didn't find it all that funny which was the problem, and then I didn't find the, the kind of drama parts of it all that compelling either. So it was a whole bunch of things that happened that I didn't really care about all that much. As I say, I didn't hate it even with that, and that's, uh, that's better than you can say for a lot of people. Um, a whole bunch of pretty good performances in there, which, uh, and there was the odd, there's the odd, um, uh, Wine's line, which did make me crack up a little bit, which I uh, <laughs> was quite fond of, um, particularly after the, um, it's after the, Mosdef's rap group has their audition uh, where it's kind of just being a bit too black. I don't want anything black for another week after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, I just didn't like it very much. Uh, it really worked for me. Um, although, actually, by far the most um, affecting portion of it is something that I think it may be viable for people to watch just on its own which is a montage right towards yeah. the end of all of the cartoons and films and various other portrayals of uh, Africans which is, some of them are probably scarily recent as well Yeah, um, and then bits of Birth of a Nation which we've talked about before on this podcast mm-hmm. you know, uh, people like Dido who give his thinking that black people weren't even capable of portraying black people um, correctly, <laughs> yeah. you know such was their ridiculously low uh, opinion of them. Yeah, I was just checking there. The BBC ran the Black and White Minstrel Show until 1978, so it's, it is not that recent. People think there aren't problems with racism in Britain. There so are. Tends yeah. um, to involve fewer deaths in the United States, so I guess that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a, a mainstream show. The BBC doesn't get more mainstream. I don't yeah. get more mentioned in the BBC, and that was to almost the time we were born. That's terrifying. Yeah. It's certainly interesting, I think. Even if you don't like it, I suspect it's maybe interesting enough to watch, but 
Uh, obviously, I got a lot more of it than you did, Scott. Yes, yes. Shall we round things off with the 25th hour, Drew? Yes, let's. Our last film today comes from a book and screenplay from Game of Thrones showrunner David Benioff. The action opens with gunshots and Edward Norton's Monty Brogan driving along a New York freeway, stopping to rescue a beaten and abused dog. This is one of a few flashbacks to help to fill us in a little on how Monty got to where we see him next, sitting with the rescued dog beside the river, contemplating his future and his final 24 hours of freedom. The next hour, the 25th, we'll see him begin a seven-year prison sentence for drug dealing. Rescuing wounded animals is probably not typical of people in Monty's line of work, but there's a lot not typical about Monty. An eloquent, intelligent young man who wasted his private school scholarship by selling weed to the rich kids there and ended up a drug dealer, working for the Russian Mafia. We never found out quite why he ended up there, though his firefighter father, James, Brian Cox, blames himself and his alcoholism after the death of Monty's mother when he was 11. Monty doesn't apportion the blame in this way, and, well, he takes responsibility for how his life turned out. Responsibility, but probably not remorse. He harbours regret for not getting out when he could, rather than for getting in. Seeing his father is one of a number of tasks Monty must attend to during his final hours, the others concerning saying goodbye to his friends, Frank, played by Barry Pepper, and Jacob, Philip Seymour Hoffman, finding a home for the dog, and leaving his partner Naturel, Rosario Dawson. Complicating this final matter is the fact that suspicion lies heavy on Monte, or at least on his friends, that it was Naturel who tipped off the DAA about his activities. Things end with a voiceover from Brian Cox as he drives his son to the prison, suggesting he just disappear out west, instead of facing the rape and brutality in prison that has been Monty's principal fear throughout the film. It may be a fantasy, it may even be an America that no longer exists, and it may be, and almost certainly is, that Monty doesn't deserve it. But Coxie's monologue is fantastic, and this romantic notion of disappearing into the centre of the country and doing things right is powerful. Right, I'm going to be going on about something here but a couple of housekeeping matters before I continue. There is considerably less underscoring than usual on 25th hour, and even several scenes in which the actors talk and we could hear them. Yay! <laughs> uh, and yes, there are double dolly shots. Three that I counted. But since the two principal ones are of characters in a nightclub either drunk or high, it for once fits. While still adding little to nothing. Natch. Spike Lee is associated with Brooklyn, but 25th Hour shows him as a New York filmmaker. And someone clearly in turns, and probably equal amounts, in love with and frustrated and infuriated by the city. This is best observed through a pair of scenes. The first incredibly reminiscent of Do the Right Thing, but in fact in Benioff's book, as an angry Monty rages at his reflection in a battered mirror, calling out everyone in New York and beyond of all colours and creeds, including himself. He's an equal opportunity hater. The second is placed at the end, as James drives Monty to prison, and Monty observes many of the people he railed against, this time observing them with warmth and, well, perhaps tenderness. Released a little over a year after the terrorist attacks of 11th of September 2001, the film begins with the searchlights that have for a time marked the location of the Twin Towers, and it might seem that it threatens to be about that, but it isn't. 
You could make some parallels between the characters and the psyche of the city post 9-11. But the truth is that the film was in production before that event, and the references, some of which are admittedly huge, i.e. the gaping scar of World Trade Center Ground Zero, are there more as mood and texture for the city. Accompanied by a great score by Terence Blanchard, which, like the films Unhurried, 24 Hours a contemplative and thoughtful film, more elegiac than melancholy, and more concerned with character and atmosphere than narrative. And for me at least, it continues to be a rewarding watch. Yes, yes. Um, not sure about all that there. Yeah, uh, really good film. Uh, very enjoyable. Lots of really nice character work from everyone involved. As you say, narrative's not its strongest suit, but the character work is so good. It's very easy to forgive that. And as a character study of uh, Monty, it does pretty well. I think it's doing a really good job of bringing a lot of colour to the side characters as well. I mean, ultimately, you could argue that might be better time better spent with Monty. I mean, how much of Jacob's um, struggles with his attraction to his students is really relevant to it but again it's, it's just all so greatly observed character work from great character actors that it, yeah. it'd be churlish to complain about it uh, yeah yeah i think the anna paquin subplots is perhaps the only thing i think could be taken from the film without being any detriment yeah so i'm not sure it adds a lot but yeah again it's it's felt seymour halfman playing a great character so I'll not necessarily complain about yeah. being able to see Philip Sumer Hoffman acting some more, you know. I'll continue to complain about Dolly Shots, though, because I don't even like those two in the club, because it's it's my... Look, if a character is drunk, then their perception might be different, but when I'm watching that character, <laughs> my perception should not be changed because I've not taken anything. I'm not on coke. Where's my coke? Where's my coke? No one's giving me any coke, so... Yes. I don't... Um... <laughs> I don't like them, but I tolerate those ones. Yes. I mean, and in terms of um, it being someone high or drunk or something, it's a lot better than yes, well, walking anything. down the street. Yeah, yes. I'm, just in terms of the way that's sometimes portrayed as well, though, we should be gratefully decided than decide that his thing was dream sequences, which <laughs> I I hate because they're always awful. Yes, things that are meant to be dreams, apart from um, gutter balls from the Big Lebowski. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> obviously yeah. awesome and has Saddam Hussein working in a bowling alley <laughs> what's not to like but yeah it's, um, it's, I, I tolerated those ones because they kind of fitted with the scene but just, I don't know why they're there especially given the third the first one you see the third of the ones I mentioned it's like I wasn't even sure that it was there because it was so fleeting. It was like for maybe five seconds, just as Edward Norton's walking into the cl- that club at the start, as he walks down the stairs, it, it moves like it was a double dolly shot, but I wasn't sure. Mm, um, yeah. It added absolutely nothing if it was one. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I think perhaps unusually in this film's company, it's a, a longish film that doesn't feel particularly long. This one does kind of pretty much justify its running time um, in a way that a lot of the other ones we've spoken about today didn't, so it's nothing to worry about in that front either. Um, yeah, just a lot of, lot of things to like in here. Again, sorry to sound like a broken record, but it's just terrific character work. Um, just a, an absolutely incredible ensemble cast. Brian Cox, Ed Norton, um, Barry Pepper, uh, I think, is uh, someone who I wouldn't normally think of as being a particularly effective. I don't know how Barry Pepper's just never really come to a conversation much, but he gets a lot of the best lines in this film. Um, so yeah, he's also pretty good in it as well. Yeah, just not an awful lot to complain about in it. Um, it's very good. You should watch it. 
Yeah. Just talking about Barry Pepper, Scott, and I don't think I've seen him in all that many things, um, but the couple of things that I particularly remember him in are, are films that I particularly like, like The Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada and yeah. this, mm-hmm. um, where he has really strong performances and really strong films. Yeah, what this film is, once again, maybe you think of those, why don't we see more Ed Norton? I want to see more Ed Norton. Ed Norton's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think I remember looking this up a bit after we spoke about it. Last time we saw an Ed Norton film, and it is it does appear to be by choice. He's um, he was taking time to, if I recall rightly, just to be with his family, and then maybe looking at more stage stuff, if I recall right, correctly, okay. and maybe looking more to. I think I think he's ultimately trying to get more into the production side of things than acting. Um, but That's yes, um, yeah, he's always been a a strong favourite for being the best actor in any film he's in. So, yeah, I would be glad to see him in much, much more stuff than he is in. Yeah, because there was a time, like, round about when this was made, so you had, like, Fight Club, American History X, this, just stunning performances in great films at the time. Then, like, you'd see him so little, he'd be in Pop-Up and The Illusionist, or, like, the most recent thing I've seen him in was Birdman. And then just disappears, and then you occasionally remember he was in terrible things like The Score... Yeah, um, and it, it seems that he'll come back for any um, Wes Anderson film, even just to do voices. Oh, of course. And, and yeah. then, then, he ran- point, then he'll randomly show up as, for one scene, as the ultimate bad guy at the end of Alita Battle Angel, for some reason. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm thinking about all the Wes Anderson stuff and Alita Battle Angel. And yeah. can, I think the more notable thing before that, I guess, was The Incredible Hulk, which was a big misstep. Yeah. Yeah, both yeah. as a film and as a choice for him, I think. But yes, I just I want to see more of him. I mean, you see people doing such good roles and such enjoyable films. It's, it makes you frustrated you don't see them more. Yeah, yeah. I might have to go back and catch up with Motherless Brooklyn, which is a film he produced and directed, and but we've not spoken about so far that I can recall. So maybe that's one no. to put on our catch up list. That's actually on my list as well. So yeah. we'll maybe get to that soon. You know. Maybe Ed Norton is currently going to be for actors what Spike Lee was for me for directors. And <laughs> yeah. um, I, I decided well, yeah, I hadn't seen many of them and I to forget a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yes, what we're saying in the end is 25th hour is really good. You should watch it. Yes, yes. And I think with that, we'll wrap up for today. Yes, until next time, we'll look at some of Lee's later career. Uh, we will bid you adieu. Take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. Um, why not email us at podcast at fudsonfilm.com? Why not Twitter us at twitter.com slash fudsonfilm? Or Facebook us at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm? Yes, I shall bid you adieu. I'm sure that the Drew Tavendale shall do too. Still awake, go. Well.